Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Transperfect Lifestyle Talks. I'm Mark Wade. I'm the practice leader at Transperfect. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Craig Lipset. Craig has been involved in DCT and ECOA for a very long time now. He came from the sponsor side. He's a co-founder of DTRA, the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance. He's an adjunct professor at Rutgers University. But you know what? He does a better job of introducing himself than I do in all his affiliations. We sat down and we talked about the future of ECOA, the future of DCT. It was a very interesting conversation. Let's get into it. Craig, I'm going to kick it over to you. Perhaps you want to tell some other things that you're involved in, because I know you're involved in an awful lot. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here with you. I'm delighted to be the co-chair for the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, DTRA, that you mentioned. I also serve as vice president for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, which is a rare disease nonprofit organization, as well as on the faculty as an adjunct assistant professor at Rutgers University in their master's program in clinical research management. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Craig, I'm so glad you're here. Seriously, thank you so much. Let's get straight into it. You and I talked a while ago about like how the market was correcting itself for DCT, and, and you had a couple of opinions around this. What do you think? Do you think it has corrected itself or, or what? It's an interesting word around correction. So I think there are two things happening, right? One is the adoption cycle that new technologies go through. And whether folks like it or not, there is always the Gartner hype cycle to point to. And I'm sure there are critics out there of looking at that as a model. But for those that aren't familiar, the Gartner hype cycle describes a new innovation going through this cycle with a peak of inflated expectations as people get excited about something new. And then that starts to drop off into a trough of disillusionment where people's hype has kind of dissipated. And now they're doing the hard work around actually making that innovation successful. And then that technology or innovation rises back up slowly through a slope of enlightenment. The decentralized trial work kind of went very quickly through the upfront peak of a hype curve, largely accelerated by the pandemic, and now is in that trough of disillusionment where the operators are doing the hard work. But as you're hinting at, in parallel, the pharmaceutical industry in general has had this conspiring of factors with inflation and reimbursement shifts and portfolio failures, and is also, well, it's contracting. Now, is it correcting itself? I'm not sure. I think our industry has a long history of overcorrection. It seems like an industry that is all feast or famine, where we're either bulked up and spending heavy, or we're crying poor and thinning ourselves down to skeleton orgs. We can't seem to find like that healthy middle. I think that's fair for a lot of industries, but in, in, certainly in pharma, it is pronounced. It is because, because we, we don't like to change. We, we are scared to change. We don't like to change. And the regulators were terrified that the regulators will stop us in our tracks and cost us hundreds of millions of dollars as we stop our studies. You know, so. Mark, I'm also convinced it's the uh, management consulting firm that's walking in the front door with the slide deck saying it's time to shrink like everybody else. Just as the other management consulting firm is walking out the back door with their slide deck that three years ago said, let's bulk up and spend and spend. It's just this cycle we're in of just constant change, which is, it makes it very hard. Obviously, it threatens just stability in general, but it makes it hard for our industry to commit to long-term changes. It makes it hard for our industry to implement change that spans greater than two years because we don't know what our investments or organization and other types of commitments will look like. To unpack that slightly, because I think we glossed over it, we didn't talk about how the regulators are 
playing a very active role in this, and we need to talk about it. The regulators, they're looking for evidence. They're looking for real evidence, uh, real-world evidence in DCT. A lot of it was actually anecdotal. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of great implementations and some struggled implementations, but a lot of that is just an aggregate of anecdotes. What all of us need is evidence. The regulators, as well as pharma operators, as well as investigators, we all need evidence in order to have sustaining confidence to keep investing in these areas. Now, what does that mean in terms of generating evidence? It means for all these implementations we're doing, if we're using visiting nurses here and video visits there, and we're doing direct-to-patient drug shipment over here, what is happening in terms of operational performance? Are there actual threats to data quality or patient safety, or are those being maintained? How are recruitment, representation, and other key performance indicators starting to look based on those experiences? And how can we do better together to gather and share that evidence? Are management and pharma needed to keep investing? Are investigators needed to keep, you know, to commit or to push back where appropriate? And as you're saying, this is what the regulators need and have been struggling to get their hands on. We saw the Oncology Center of Excellence at the FDA put out a call the year before last. If you're submitting in oncology, please try to include marking down which fields were captured using which decentralized methods. Nobody did. Then they put out a survey together with City asking sponsors who submitted in oncology to please respond to a survey. Which decentralized methods did you use and how did they work in these different protocols that you submitted to the agency for review? The response rate was very low. It's been a bit of pulling teeth to get that evidence. And I don't think that industry is reticent to share. I think that our industry isn't properly tracking. We're not using our CTMS. We're not using our other existing tools to properly track which studies are using which methods so we can extract that evidence easier. It's a very manual process for many to have to pull that evidence together and answer questions. This is, this is very interesting because if the regulators send us a questionnaire, you know, what, you and I came from the sponsor side, the regulators send us a questionnaire. We like, it's like jump, we say how high and we jump on it. And you're, you're, saying, you're saying to me that there was a reluctance or, or there's a gap, can I say gap? but not the kind of uptake that one would expect, which I find fascinating. Uh, having sat through a number of FDA briefings in the last while, my role somewhere else, I've watched the FDA almost been very, very vocal around, please get involved, please send us the data, please send us this, please include us. We have an appetite for this, we want this. And what I'm hearing from you is that there was this reluctance to share. I think that industry is willing to share if there's an easy way for them to click extract and get that data together to be able to share. I think the friction for so many in industry is they don't have easy access themselves to performance metrics that are normalized and standardized about which studies are using which decentralized methods in which countries and what have been the operational experiences to be able to pull that together quickly and to be able to respond. And I think that's presenting as a challenge for many, and that's sort of our next hurdle in order to get out of that trough of disillusionment in the hype cycle and be able to climb back up. I find this fascinating that, you know, and I really want to really unpack this point because we're saying that farmers don't have the access to that kind of data. I find that very hard to understand because we are a science data-driven industry. So we look at data like top to bottom, side to side. We look at it so many different ways. And what I'm hearing is that we don't have access to that kind of data. 
virtually what was done in physical form on the, the different geographies. I find this very strange. How can this happen? I guess the question is, what's the right system to be able to track that? So there's a couple of layers to this, right? I think that coming out of the pandemic, a lot of organizations were just tracking maybe on a spreadsheet if there was a central group, which protocols had a visiting nurse or a video or something else being used. Now, at a study level, most of the major CTMS platforms have the capacity to track this type of information. But DTRA and others were trying to work to normalize some of those definitions and jargon so that when industry starts to track using their CTMS, at least at a study level, it'll be consistent in terms of what we're calling a home health visit or a video visit. But I think the real level of granularity the regulators would love to see is going to be the hardest level of granularity, which is on a visit-by-visit basis, because we know there's a lot of talk of optionality and flexibility. And I think what the regulators would love to be able to track isn't even so much from a spreadsheet or even at the CTMS level, but it may be at the EDC level when a data point is being collected, was that data point being collected using video in the office at a healthcare provider's location? or some other way of capturing that data. Now, that would add a tremendous amount of burden to the system. So to be able to answer that question, which would be important, would be very burdensome if every EDC field had the chasing question of, by the way, where are you capturing this? So we'll have to really think about, you know, the right level of granularity. The next one that's missing in the near term is better use of our CTMS. It's the right place for us to track, at least at a study level, what methods are being used. Now, you raised earlier this, this theme that, you know, are the regulators ahead of us? Are the regulators behind us? And it is a little bit of push and pull if you look at the last few years, right? 17, 18 years ago, maybe it was longer, we did the remote trial at Pfizer, which mm-hmm. was the first fully decentralized trial. So that was industry bringing that to the regulators. The regulators absolutely did not push back on that idea. In fact, if you look back in the in the history books, the press release that Pfizer put out about the remote study has a quote from none other than the FDA's Janet Woodcock. It is the first time the FDA put a quote in a Pfizer press release showing their support for innovators coming to the FDA. Fast forward, it was the FDA going through city to lead work and to drive work that led to recommendations from city, the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative on decentralized trials. Fast forward a bit beyond that in the, in the heat of the pandemic, maybe it was industry trying to sustain their protocols during the pandemic. And they got a little ahead of the regulators, but the regulators caught up very quickly, issuing their guidance document during the pandemic explaining very clearly their support for these methods. Now coming out of the pandemic, the regulators are once again ahead of industry, having issued draft guidance back in the spring. And now that'll be finalized next year. In some ways, now it's the regulators that may be a click ahead of industry doing a little more pulling than pushing. I think that's fair to say. And by the way, we have we can't we can't just talk about like a US centric thing. The EMA actually are very innovative themselves. Their submissions now has changed dramatically. And and anyone who wants to uh delve into that, there's a couple of podcasts out there around that. 
EMA has put out recommendations on decentralized trials. Regulators from Taiwan, Japan, China, most major markets that had made statements about using decentralized approaches during the pandemic have also been putting out statements making clear their receptivity to continue to use those approaches coming out of the pandemic, remembering we have two guardrails that are unchanged, patient safety and data integrity. And we have great latitude to do innovative things in between those guardrails. And of course, one last thing, I will always say this, we have to respect the science because the FDA are going to, they're going to push back and say, are you respecting the science? Are you using technology? And we want to talk about technology in a moment, but are you using technology for the sake of technology or are you using technology in a, in a way that, that's, as you rightly say, sits in between those two guardrails? And I think the FDA is quite switched on for that. We have to respect the science, full stop. We, we know how to validate and develop new ways to measure with greater confidence that can be agnostic to locations. We have to acknowledge the shortcomings of many of our traditional endpoints, our endpoints that have historically been so fragile, so delicate, that it requires a patient to come into the clinic for every visit to be scrutinized or looked at with their hands on by the investigator because these endpoints have not been robust and reliable for us. It's amazing to me, Mark, when you look at some indications that I've, I've had the opportunity to touch, when you look at indications like alopecia areata, right? We'll be at a large pharma and we've invested tens of millions into the research and development of a molecule. And we're standing up there, these big registration trials. And the endpoint for these is literally asking dermatologists around the world to look at a patient's scalp and guesstimate the percent of hair regrowth that they have. And we call these gold standards as if they're really robust and reliable. And our entire multi-million dollar development program is then hinged on whether dozens of different dermatologists at different sites around the world can consistently guesstimate how much hair percentage has re regrown in parts of the scalp. It's, it's kind of madness. Fascinating. Now, I, I want to pivot away, okay? I want to pivot away from endpoints. I want to pivot away from, from regulators. We touched on it before very briefly. We talked about how the pandemic changed things massively. We talked about the hockey, I call it the hockey stick. The, the uptake was amazing. I want to talk about briefly about the technology. In your world, in your mind, has the technology kept up to pace as it should have? Or has it actually slowed in terms of its, its I development? Think, I think that we're deploying technology the way we, as industry CROs and tech partners, know how, which is very top-down and pushing down technology upon sites. And um, sites have become you know, very reluctant warriors dealing with this cacophony of different solutions that are getting pushed down on them. And... Then we wonder why there's site pushback. Then we wonder why there are quality issues. Then we wonder why do all these sites need staff to be constantly retrained what's going on at the sites. The middle name of an RCT is control. And we, we want these controlled trials, these controlled clinical trials to be normalized and reduce variability. And we think that by pushing common technology down in our study, that that's the way we keep control in our study. But in fact, it's a different C, it's chaos that's raining down on the sites because every study that has e-consent, every study that's trying to use video, they're all pushing down their own version of e-consent right. and video within their study down on the sites. And so I think there are some things where we, we're just getting wrong. I think we're getting it wrong when we're expecting sites to constantly switch platforms just because they're in a different protocol. And we think that that's going to be better quality. 
I think we we know what it would look like. We can paint that picture of focusing on interoperability, of focusing on minimum quality standards and letting sites use more of their own technology if they have it and provision technology if they don't. Those words will sound very familiar to folks in the ePro and ECOA space. Yeah. It's the same words we've been using for BYOD for years. Let people use the tech that they have. And if they don't, they're not excluded. That's when we provision. And that needs to be our shift when we're looking at technology and our intersection with investigator sites. That really is where I'm going, because if you look at e-consent, e-consent is a tool. It should, well, it should be a tool. And it captures the, the patient ID number. It captures the study number. It captures the, the geography. All those wonderful things. But if a site has their own e-consent tool, why can't they use their own e-consent tool and have that data pushed into the EDC itself? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like this, this whole thing about that we, oh, you have to use our consent tool because it's our consent tool. It means a site now suddenly has all these different tools they have to deal with. I think our vendors in this space have been busily competing with one another, trying to say that my e-consent solution is is incrementally better in some way and maybe in feature and interface than my peer. But in fact, the best e-consent will be the one that the site's already familiar with and already using for all their other studies because it won't require retraining and it will better fit their workflow. I've been on the board for a major health system in the mid-Atlantic here in the U.S. for about a decade. It's a 12-hospital system. 50% of their studies are investigator-initiated and grant-funded, and 50% of their studies are multi-center trials that are industry-sponsored. They use e-consent for all of their studies. The 50% that they run, they have an e-consent platform. The problem isn't that they're opposed to e-consent. The problem is you're giving them an unfamiliar one. The focus should be how do we interoperate on what? Signatures, dates, versions. These are the only things we really care about with regard to consent. Maybe we have to define some minimum norms or standards. We want your e-consent to have the following basic functionality yeah. or security provisions. And beyond that, let them use what they're already familiar with. And I think we can then start to take that same mindset and start to rethink some of our other interfaces with the investigator side. Now, I was going to just pivot to that as well, because there are certain technologies, they don't play nicely with other technologies and they don't play nicely with other existing technologies. I'm kind of hinting around the whole kind of EDC, ECOA platform type thing. And they, they don't, sometimes they don't play very well together. You know, and when, when I think about the, the story of unified platforms, like I get the message. I get the message that it comes already out of the box integrated. And that integration would always be maybe a little tighter or in some way easier than having two different pieces that we have to connect together. But then I think back to my childhood, and we were talking about this, Mark, the yeah. other day. My house, if we have a TV and we have, you know, a DVD player or remember a VCR, we connect them with RCA cables, right? We have a patch that we can interoperate between two different components. But then I remember back to my childhood when I would be in, in middle school and the teachers would roll in this cart and on the cart, there would be a television with a VCR built into it, this TVR VCR com TV VCR combo. And I remember thinking back to that, like that to me is what I picture an integrated platform. It's all built in, but what that also means is I didn't get to pick the TV that I really wanted. Maybe I wanted a 21 inch instead of a 17 inch. 
and I didn't really get to pick a best-in-class VCR. And by the way, VCRs are now kind of obsolete, but I'm still stuck with a TV with a giant rectangular slot in front of it. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a certain amount of flexibility and best-of-class that we get when we contrive interoperability. And I think that platforms that are fully integrated, that's great. They should certainly continue to do so. But they can't win just based on that. I think they still have to be able to support those RCA cables and make sure that we can flex and plug in different solutions. And in doing that, I think we'll meet sites where they really want to land, which is more control and autonomy over their system. When they don't have a system to stand up of their own, great. We provision from an integrated platform, and that's fine. But we still need to be able to plug in and let sites have that bit of flexibility. Here's a quick anecdote with you, Mark. Over the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of folks talking about how hybrid is the state of adoption of decentralized within industry today. And it absolutely is true. Most decentralized implementations in industry-sponsored clinical trials are hybrid, not fully decentralized. Notice I said in industry-sponsored. We shouldn't be fooled into thinking that that's the norm for all clinical trials. When you look at many of the uh, investigator-initiated studies out there, many of those are fully decentralized and extremely successful. Many of those are single site, right, with one PI, grant-funded, and they're running with a host of decentralized solutions put together. So what's the difference? The difference is around control. The difference is around the systems that the investigator has to jump and use. It seems pretty clear to me that when we're able to give investigators a greater sense of control, autonomy, destiny, they're very receptive to these approaches. When we take top-down strategies that push unfamiliar technology on people, and they resist, and sometimes for good reason, because it's adding burden and extra work for their day. This, this is exactly it. This interoperability that I think would be the, not the panacea, but it certainly would be it a place we should get to. We don't have it right now, unfortunately, but I think we should get there. And your point is very well taken around the BYOD, because I've been talking about that for a long time. As long as you and I know each other, we've been talking about that for a long time, that patients want to use their own tech and what they're, what they're familiar with. Yeah, if there are certain patients that can't use that tech, we provision them, as you rightly say. But you're absolutely right. This interoperability, I think, is key. We get this because we're always talking about how people are resistant to change. And so our conclusion then is, therefore, we shouldn't use ECOA. Therefore, we shouldn't use e-consent. Instead of acknowledging that, well, actually, maybe they're resistant to change, meaning they already had a device they're using. They already have an yeah. e-consent they're using. And that's the level of change that they're really resistant to. It's not the idea of answering questions on a device or the idea of using electronic consent. It's the change of the way you're implementing it. That's perfect. That's the perfect place to perfect place to end this. That is that is really good. That's really useful. Craig, where can people find you and find some of your research and some of your writings? Well, they can find me right here on this flat screen. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I uh, apparently I'm I'm I, I'm pretty present there. A little bit on uh, platforms like Twitter X and Thread, but you can also find me every Friday at 12 noon uh, Eastern Time. We host a uh, an event on Clubhouse called TGIFDCT, and this is a, a live show every Friday. If you follow me on LinkedIn, we're always sharing updates on what the topics and guests are for that week. There, it's pre it's recorded, uh, so while it's live on 
on Fridays. If you miss it, you can pick it up uh, through a podcast we push out called Decentralized. But those are some great ways to stay connected. And hopefully, uh, if folks have questions or other ideas they want to build on any of these topics, uh, hopefully we'll be able to connect there. That's great. Craig, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us today. I want to say thanks to everyone for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Transperfect Lifesite Talks. We're streaming on every platform that you get your podcast from. I'm Mark Wade. Thank you so much.